So, tonight, we're going to be talking about the Pool of Bethesda. And I'm just a little disclaimer, I've just gotten over the, uh, the cold, so I've had a coughing fit. If Dave and Fiona could edit that out of the recording, that would be amazing. Uh, but hopefully, all should be good. Sorry? I need, I, need a, I need to jump in the pool. Maybe. <laughs> it's a bit cold today, so maybe the healing can wait for a bit later. Um, yeah, so Pool of Bethesda. Oh, that's a song. I've got to hold it up here. Is that better? Okay. The Pool of Bethesda. So this story is a really cool story. And, when I f- and basically the story is about a pool in Bethesda. But it's not an ordinary pool. No, no, no. This pool doubles in the miraculous. You see, every now and then, according to Scripture, an angel would come down and stir up the waters of this pool. And the first person to jump in this pool would be healed of any diseases or illnesses or injuries they would have. And I remember when I first heard this story as a kid in Sunday school and just thinking, how cool is that? Why doesn't stuff like that happen these days, at you know, Berkeley Pool, why can't we jump in there and get healed? It's probably the opposite way around. We'd probably get a little bit sick. <laughs> um, the kiddie pool's always warmer, don't you notice? <laughs> and I think the reason why, give me some thought, why I thought this was so cool is because the Bible is full of miracles. We read about Jesus doing heaps of miracles, the disciples in Acts doing plenty of miracles, even the prophets in the Old Testament doing lots of miracles. But all those miracles are going through some person that's been anointed by God and divine acts are coming through them. Here at this pool was just the miraculous happening in the ordinary. It's just a, a pool, an ordinary pool, no one's actually, there's no prophet or Messiah there, it's just an angel's coming down, stirring up the water, and people are getting healed. And that's just something so interesting and so cool. And so I found it really interesting just to delve into the story a bit deeper and see where it takes us. So I'll start just by reading um, the story out of uh, John chapter 5, and then we'll dig a bit deeper. So uh, after this time, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man who was there had an infirmary 38 years, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise and take your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is a Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man? I have that bit actually highlighted because interestingly, that question is the very question that John's gospel sets out to answer. Who is this man? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Is he just the son of a carpenter or something more? Spoiler, he's something more. 
Uh, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest, something worse, lest a worse thing comes upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So this is the story of the pool of Bethesda. Now, we're not too sure of the extent of this miracle, we don't get a whole lot of details. Maybe uh, some people uh, in some of the readings I've been doing assumed it might have just been um, maybe um, like some underground tremors that ripple the water or maybe some drainage or something like that. But legend grew around these ripples of the water that it was an angel stirring up and if you jumped in, you'd be healed. Um, other people might think maybe this is just something that just happened once. An actual angel did come down and stir up these waters and someone did get healed. And then after this just happening once, people now flock to this pool, hoping, expecting it's going to happen again. And isn't that just human nature? We see God work in one way, and we hope to see him work that way. In fact, we come to expect it, and we, um, we look to it so we can understand it, so we can almost control it in some way, so we can predict it. So if I do X, God will do Y. It would be so great if we could you know, control God's powers like that for our own benefit, but that's not the way it works. And so we don't, know, don't exactly know how this, or to the extent of these miracles uh, were happening, but something must have happened at some point uh, in time. Uh, now, we don't know exactly what was wrong with the man that Jesus healed. In uh, Greek, the word used is asthenia, uh, which directly translates to impotent, interestingly enough. However, that today gives us ideas that there's a, you know, a few problems in the bedroom rather than something worse. So, what we believe this is to be a more accurate interpretation, something like weakness or disease. And so we believe this man has some kind of muscle deficiency. He wasn't able to walk or move around properly, which is why he was at uh, the pool for 38 years. Uh, the name Bethesda actually means uh, house of mercy, which is interesting because we think as sick people coming to this pool. Why is this called a house of mercy? And the reason is that there are actually there is actually uh, a high level of uh, correspondence back in the time and somewhat today as well between sickness and sinfulness and if you were seen to be sick or have some kind of long-term sickness you would be assumed that you've done some awful sin in your life which has brought this upon you or someone in your family or household has done something that has brought this sin upon you as well and so this pool it wasn't like, you know, the nice pools we go to with the cocktail bars and the, uh, and the water slides and things like this. This was like an emergency room of a hospital. But it wasn't a hospital. This was a place where desperate people went. It was a last resort to go to, to try and get healed and hoping that these waters would ripple and they'll be able to jump in and be healed. And so it wasn't a nice place to be. You can imagine the people moaning and wailing through the night as they lie around this pool hoping to be healed, waiting for their one chance. You can imagine the hygiene there wouldn't be that great either. The public toilets at this pool probably weren't that great. And even if they had public toilets there, a lot of the people like this man probably wouldn't be able to get to the public toilets. So you can kind of imagine the state of the water as well. It's not a great place to be. It's an embarrassing place to be. Um, if you go to the next slide, Dan, I've actually got a picture here of the, uh, the pools of Beth uh, pool of Bethesda. Now, this is actually a scale model. It's since in ruins, and you can tell because there's a giant tourist standing just to the left of the city of Jerusalem there with a the camera. 
But that gives you an idea of what it looks like. Uh, what it looks like to... Oh, and actually, if you just have a look, uh, not that gate there on the right-hand side, but if you follow the path around, that is there the sheep gate that they're talking about um, in the story as well on the, on the left-hand side that leads into the city of Jerusalem. If you go to the next slide, this is what it looks like now. And so, yeah, it's just quite, you know, it's basically in ruins now. You can still make out some of the structures. Interestingly, there's some modern housing just in the background there as well. So some people's house now back onto this uh, pool of uh, Bethesda, which is interesting. And I think that's really cool just to, we read about all these stories in the Bible and all these amazing places and then actually to see them in um, a photo of it, of what it actually looks like now. So it actually gives, at least for me, quite a lot of grounding that this isn't just a story that we're reading about. This stuff actually happened and these are places that it can actually be. And actually my uncle's in Jerusalem at the moment for a big conference, which is uh, really cool. And I asked him to actually take some pictures of the Pool of Bethesda for me for tonight, but he never responded to me. So this one's from Google. <laughs> okay, so... Um, like I said, this is an embarrassing place to be. It's not a pool you want to go to for your summer holiday. But what makes it worse, what made it even more embarrassing is, like I was saying before, it's right next to Sheep Gate. Now, there's several gates that go around the city of Jerusalem. The Sheep Gate is the gate that's closest to the temple. And so this is the gate where the Jews would go through as they um, enter Jerusalem to, make their, to give their sacrifices at the temple. And so, obviously, they'll be taking a lot of sheep there, um, new, newborn lambs, offerings, all those kind of things to be sacrificed at the temple. And so, here you can see this disparity between these two social groups. You have these Jews here that are doing what is right by the law. And there's always a lot of, uh, uh, you can't say with all the Jews, but for a lot of them, there's a lot of ego at play as well. They're probably eyeing off who has the, the best offering, who's got the whitest lamb uh, that they're, they're taking to the temple. And... As they walk past this pool of sinful people that have done something wretched in their lives to get what they now deserve, you can imagine they're turning their nose up for the smell, they're turning their nose up because they don't want to even cast their eyes on this pool of sinful people as they walk past this pool towards the sheep gate. So this is an embarrassing, humiliating place to be and you'd only be around this pool if you're desperate. And so Jesus approaches this man and has this interaction about, do you want to be healed? And from this interaction this man has from Jesus, we actually pull three convictions of how we come to God from this conversation ourselves, each one a little bit more confronting than the next. And this story finishes then with a revelation of freedom, which is a bit of a double-edged sword. It's, it's beautiful in one way, but in another way it actually shines quite a harsh light on us as well, but I'll go into that a little bit um, in a little bit of time as well. So, conviction number one, if you go to the next slide, conviction number one, Jesus enters this pool area, which is already a statement in itself, this holy rabbi entering this sinful place and walks up to this man who has been sick for 38 years and asks what seems like a very obvious question, would you like to be made well? You can imagine the guy would be like, yeah, I've just been sitting here for the last 38 years, that'd be great. But... You've got to think, this man who's been sitting here for 38 years, this is, by chance, chance like this is the vast majority of his life. Whether he likes it or not, he has become accustomed to this way of life. There is someone who must be feeding him, whether it be a family member or there's some you know, charity at the pool, who, who knows. He's getting food somewhere. He's obviously able to look after himself to some extent, actually being alive for this long as well. He's used to this way of life. Now, if he were to be healed, 
Does that mean he'll have to now go get a job? He's probably never worked a day in his life if he's been lame. What family expectations would he now have on him? Would he have to then go get married and continue his family name through the generations? And so he'll be having to weigh up. Is it, do I stick with the pain that I know or do I enter into this, this terror of the unknown and take that step forwards? And that can be a frightening thing, even if you have been lame for 38 years. And so when we come to God, we need to ask ourselves, what we're asking for is what we really, really want. Or is there some hesitation there as well? Because we all do come to God. We all do ask God for things all the time. We pray, we ask for blessings, signs, miracles, all those kind of things. But what we want is, what we're asking for is what we really want. So, some of us might be asking for perhaps a, a promotion at work. But is there hesitation there? Maybe about the extra responsibility or the hours. Some of us might be asking for um, a, a partner, to find our life partner. But is there, is there a hesitation there between what we want and then having to share our lives with somebody else. What does that mean? Maybe you're asking for God, what is my calling? What am I supposed to be doing on this earth? Why have you put me here at this time? What is it? But maybe you're a bit hesitant there. What, what is it going to cost for me to actually follow God? And, and to be honest, in, in my own life, that's something that I'm trying to work out and struggle with uh, at the moment. And I'll, I'll share a bit about that a little bit later as well. The next thing, conviction number two. Are we asking for the right thing? Now, this man, when Jesus walked up to him and said, do you want to be made well? This man didn't say, yes, please, heal me. Now, this man was basically asking Jesus, can you get me into the pool? But this man didn't want to get into the pool, not really. He wanted to be healed. And so asking to get into the pool wasn't what he really wanted. And so when we go to God and we ask him for things and we come to God and we plead him and pray for things, are we asking for the right things? And so, again, looking at that promotion, it, do you really want that promotion? Or is it maybe a sense of freedom that you want? Freedom from a financial burden or the risk of poverty? Or maybe it's freedom from judgment in the eyes of your colleagues or the eyes of your parents, perhaps. What is it that you really want when you're coming to God and asking? We find ourselves, especially in Christian circles, a little bit hesitant when we share our desires. We think... Desires are selfish, and this shouldn't be something that, you know, I want. I can't be public about my desires. This is just something I'm just going to go to, to God about, even if you feel you can even do that much. Because we feel, especially in Christian circles, that it all needs, always needs to be about us, and about us, the church, the community, the kingdom of God. What I want doesn't matter. It needs to be for the greater good. And if you're talking about just, you know, shallow desires, I want a new pair of shoes or something like that, yeah, sure, I mean, that's not bad, but... If you look really deep inside yourself, I believe we all have desires. There is something that we all have, that we all want, that we deeply, deeply yearn for. And we want that so much. And that desires, if you really unpack it, there's a good chance those desires uh, fit right in line with why God has us here. Why we're here living this life right now in this time. There is a reason why every single one of us are here. Why every single one of us here has a calling. Um, a reason why... Uh, we're alive, the intent that God made us with. And if we can align our desires and our passions and our focus with what God wants with us as well, for us as well, then that's a very powerful thing and that's the best use of our lives as well. So there's nothing wrong with these deep desires that we have. We shouldn't be ashamed of them. We should be proud of them and pursue them and not be afraid to ask God for them as well. Um, just a little bit about, I guess, some of my own desires. And 
And this, and to be honest, I feel a little bit apprehensive to share this as well, because often when we share stories in church or testimonies in church, it's about, I went through this hard time, it's God did something great, everything's fantastic now. However, what I'm about to share with you isn't really that realised. I haven't really come out the other side, and I'm still hoping in faith uh, and trying to trust in God that everything is going to be okay. And so I've, I've always felt that I have wanted to do uh, something with my life to to find my calling or whatever you might say it is to to work out what my desires are to to uh, to live more for the kingdom of God um, and it's only been, probably been the last uh, few years I've actually actively been pursuing this uh, a lot harder and so I'm currently putting my career on hold at the moment so I can pursue studies and so at the moment I, I just I finished a year or so ago a diploma in theology. I'm now partway through my first year of a Bachelor of Theology at the moment. And fortunately, I'm at a place in my work life where I can actually do a lot of my study and my uh, listening to lectures and assignments at work, which is an absolute blessing, rather than having to do that at home and eat into you know, family time and things like that. So I've got, I've got a good life balance at the moment. However, to do that, I have to put my career on hold. And up until now, I've, I've been reasonably successful moving up the corporate ladder at work. And... And the hard thing is, the people that I've moved up that ladder with, I'm now starting to see them continue to move while I'm still staying where I am. And that, that's a bit hard for me to swallow sometimes. But what's going to be really hard for me in a couple of years' time is that the people I've trained, people I've taken under my wing, people that I've shown the ropes to are now going to start getting further up that ladder than me. And that's going to give my ego a big pounding. I know it. And so I'm trying to mentally prepare myself for that. So... I can still have faith in God that things are going to be okay. Because that, that is the big struggle. There's that big part of me that's like, what are you doing? You, why, you need to set yourself up. You need to build your wealth. You need to set yourself up for your family as well to make sure that everything's going to be okay down the track. And so I come to God often with questions, with fears, with doubts, and going, God, what am I doing? Am I actually doing the right thing in this moment? Am I... Or am I doing something absolutely foolish? And something that actually helped me recently was just a couple of sermons ago, Caro preached about sitting in, with questions in God. And so this was the, her sermon that she preached after the, uh, when we had that the first morning service, the one she preached that afternoon. And if you weren't here, I really recommend going back and having listened to it on the podcast because it was a fantastic sermon, really loved it. Gave Caro a plug there. So... Um, yeah, but I really got a lot out of that one. And she talks about we are close to God when we have questions rather than when we just have all the answers. And that is so true. And when I come to God and I ask him questions and I try to meditate on what he's saying, this is what the conversation will sound like. It starts off with me just saying, God, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Can you just show me the way? Give me a sign. And then I'd hear God say, are you sure that's what you really want? Are you sure this is the path you really want to take? And I'm like, yep, 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 I think so. Yep, it is. And God, being the all-seeing spirit he is, he goes, I detect a bit of hesitation. <laughs> What's all that about? I'm like, oh, I'm just afraid of what this might cost down the track. And God will be like, yep, true. To follow me can have a great cost. And I'm like, so can you just, you know, snap your fingers and make me okay with it all and just give me, you know, supernatural bravado just to go ahead gung-ho? Because if there's ever a hard way or an easy way to do something, you know I'm going to try and take the easy way. (laughs) 
And God will say, I could do that, but you would miss out on a lot of growth experience. A lot of the biggest lessons, yeah, have. a lot of the best lessons you'll ever learn are through those hard times, having faith. And I'm like, God, I'm just scared. And then God's like, and this is where I'm at the moment. God's like, okay, let me ask you a question. Why are you scared? Do you trust me? And that's the bombshell that I'm trying to get my head around at the moment. How much do I trust God? I've taken a step of faith, and every day I feel like I'm taking another step, but how much do I, can I, can I trust God enough to keep going with this every day? And that's, that's as far as I've gotten. I don't have an answer. I really hope I do. Time will tell. Maybe come and ask me you know, in a few months or something, see how I'm going. But I really, really want to. I, this is something, like I said, I really do desire. I feel that inside yearning, and it's something I really do want to pursue. But I really need to make sure I'm trusting in God. And so do you see, asking God questions and just sitting in these questions, maybe without the answer, you get a lot deeper with God rather than just saying, this is what I'm doing, and I know the answers, and just assuming you've got it all together. That questioning is very, very powerful. Because so, so often we're asking for signs. We're asking, God, just give me a sign. Give me a miracle. Just show me everything's going to be okay. That's all going to be fine. But the problem with signs are, is that signs will always eventually fade. Jesus did many miracles during his time on earth. The only one that is still around is his sacrifice on the cross and our eternal salvation. Everything else faded away. Uh, we even see Jesus... Um, doing miracles and people believing him just because of the miracles, but that's not true faith. And so if we actually go this in, in John, just a couple of uh, chapters before to John chapter 2, uh, we've got this verse here. So while he, being Jesus, was in Jerusalem, at the Passover festival, many people saw signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And so these people believed in Jesus, but only because they saw the signs he was doing. Their faith in Jesus was not in him, in the signs. And that faith would fade away as soon as the signs in the memory fade away, or they start questioning, did that really happen, that kind of stuff as well. And so Jesus would not commit himself to these people because it was not a true faith. And so that's the thing with signs. They just are signs. It's not the event, it's not the destination, it's not the goal. It's just a sign. And so Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. But Lazarus died again, didn't he? Jesus fed the 5,000 people, but they all got hungry again. And in my own life, one of the signs that I saw was actually with my, with my mum. And some of you would have been around when she was at this church. She passed away a few years ago um, from a stroke, but that wasn't her first stroke. Her first stroke was back in 1998. I was 17 years old at the time. She was 36, so as old as I am at the moment, when she had her first stroke. And she had a massive bleed on the right side of her brain and it completely paralyzed her left side. She was in hospital for a couple of months until she finally made it uh, home. However, she was still completely paralyzed down the left side of her body, had no movement at all. And we had to do these exercises with her to keep that side of her body moving because what would happen is if you didn't use those muscles, they would shrink back. And for example, in her hand, it would the shrinking muscles would pull it tighter and tighter and tighter until the creases in your palm would be so tight that sweat would not be able to evaporate. 
and then infection would set in, and then you'd have to get uh, your limbs amputated and things like that. It's absolutely horrific. And so we were in a desperate time. We were praying to God, pleading with God for some kind of healing. And I remember one day my dad was doing the exercises with my mum, and, uh, and he was praying, and they had worship music on, just like they did every other day. And it's just, God, just give me a sign. And then out of the blue, my mum's arm moved for the first time in months. She was able to hold it right up. And, and there were tears of joy, and, and there was, it was praising God. It was amazing. Mum's going to be completely healed. Going to be, life's going to go back to normal. It's going to be fantastic. And, and yes, it was a sign. Mum never fully regained all movement in her body, but she was able to uh, walk again unassisted after a while, and even years down the track, she was then able to uh, get her driver's license, and then she was able to go shopping and do cooking and do all these things that she was um, doing before, and it was fantastic. It was amazing. We thought, yes, th- this is a sign. But then a few years ago, she had another uh, stroke, another bleed on her brain, but this is on the other side of her brain, which just took her out and eventually killed her. And had my faith in God only been in that sign that my mum was going to be better, then my faith in God would have died when my mum died. And so a sign is just a sign. It is not God. And so when we come to God and ask him for signs, we need to look at what are we really asking for? What, what are we pleading for, for God for? Do we want just a sign or can our faith be in something bigger? A sign points us towards God. It's not God himself. Just like, we're, just like when we're driving through the countryside and we see that sign, 50 kilometres to McDonald's. <laughs> it's just a sign. No one stops at that sign, do they? Go, I've made it. No, the sign just whets your appetite, doesn't it? It makes you picture that processed food and how sweet it's going to be when you finally get there and and eat it. It gets you excited. It helps you anticipate it and makes you long for what's really going to come. But the sign is still just a sign. It's not the real thing. And so that then leads us to the real thing. And that's this third conviction I want to talk about. And this one is, is Jesus enough? And this one can be very hard for us to to hear. So this lame man, lying beside the pool for 38 years, trying to be the first one in the pool, but despite all his efforts, despite his best strength, he was never able to make it in the pool first. And so what do we continually try to do in our own strength that God can do for us? And we need to accept, is Jesus enough? Because in the end, Jesus stood before this man And everything this man needed to be healed was in Jesus. It wasn't in the pool. It wasn't in other people helping him get to the pool. It was in Jesus, in the man that was standing right before him. Jesus was everything he needed. Jesus was enough. So, can we sit with that revelation? Because that's the challenging one. So again, you're asking, you're pleading for God, give me this promotion, I need to be financially secure. Is Jesus enough? If you never get another promotion again in your life, if you never make another step in your career and stay exactly where you are, can you have faith in God that where you are, he'll look after you, that he'll be enough? If you're asking for that part, I need to find that significant other person. Can you sit with the fact that Jesus is enough? And if you will never do anything with your calling, if you'll never change the world, see souls one for God, do anything that you feel you're called to do and just do nothing else with your life. Can you sit with the fact that is Jesus enough? Because in him we find the answer to every question we might have. Anything we might need, anything we long for, 
is in Jesus. And he will always work through the unconventional, the unexpected. Jesus never healed people the same way. Some, in some people, he, um, he uh, spat on the ground, made mud, wiped on their eyes. People were healed of blindness. Other people, times, he just touched people. Other times, he didn't have to see people. It was just their faith that was enough for them to get healing. He never heals people the same way twice. And so we need to understand, even though we might not understand it, we can't see how Jesus is going to work through this situation. Can we sit and, and be at peace with the fact, is Jesus enough? I have to help me with this uh, word that is written down. So it was a word that was given to me uh, maybe a couple of years now. And every time I'm feeling anxious and those voices are screaming in my head, am I doing the right thing? Am I being foolish and throwing you know, the best part of my working years away to pursue this theology thing? I read this word that was uh, given to me, and, and, and it just basically says, it's okay to be where I am, to sit where I am. If I wasn't taking another step further, it's okay. It's okay because God's got me. And in that, that gives me a lot of peace and helps those anxious voices subside um, a bit. And so it's good to have things like that, that we can go to and rely on, just know that Jesus is enough. And then finally is this revelation of freedom. And like I said before, this one is the, a double-edged sword. Uh, so if you go, actually, if you go back to, I think, the second slide of the verses, Dan. Okay, so you can see in the middle, uh, verse 8, Jesus said, rise and take up your bed and walk. Immediately he was made well, uh, took up his bed and walked. And then, it's, and then we have this great sentence. And that day was the Sabbath. Bum, bum, bum. You know, if you read your Bible, that's never good news for Jesus. <laughs> but it's almost like, when you read it, it's, it's almost like Jesus, like, he's just kicking his feet up, having a chat with the disciples during the week. Come the Sabbath, Jesus like, let's go plow a field. <laughs> and he's just waving at the Pharisees as he's doing all this work, just to stir them, just to ruffle those feathers. And that day was the Sabbath. And Jesus knew that this man was going to betray him. And that's exactly what he did, because after he healed um, this man, this man went and told the Jews, uh, who were actually at first, he didn't know who Jesus was. He, he, he was healed. He had no idea who this person that healed him was. And then he met Jesus in the temple, found out who he was, went back and told the Jews, yep, that's the guy, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one that, that healed me. And so Jesus absolutely knew this guy was going to betray him. We, and again, in uh, John chapter 2, that's what we saw. Jesus knows what's in everyone's heart. He knows what was going to happen. And so this man betrayed Jesus, yet Jesus did not shy away from him. In fact, it says Jesus walked up to him in the temple. They were both in the temple. Jesus saw the guy. I know he's going to betray him, but I'm going to walk up to him and bless him anyway. And just like Jesus walked up to this man, knowing full well, um, he was going to betray him, and this is actually one of the the, um, the, the parts that actually gets his ball rolling that go that ends up leading Jesus towards uh, the crucifixion. Jesus walked right towards that man, just like he walked right towards the crucifixion, and Jesus will also walk right towards us, no matter what we have done or what we will do with whatever he has given us as well. And so what this means for us is, yes, there are two revelations we need to have here. Jesus is enough for us, and then also we are enough for Jesus. 
And that's the tough one for some of us to get. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter if we've, uh, the things we've said out of anger. Maybe we've been doing that for a lot. Maybe we've been doing that for 38 years, maybe longer. It doesn't matter if we've, you know, struggled with addiction, alcohol, drugs, pornography, if we lied, cheated, or steal, or, or stolen. It doesn't matter what we've done. Jesus will still walk towards us and love us anyway. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of God. There is an amazing grace that we find in Jesus. We might feel too, con- too condemned to go to God because we keep stuffing up in the, in the same area again and again and again. But we need to know that God will love us anyway. And that's why I was saying this is like a double-edged sword. It shows God's grace, God's love so amazing despite all the stuff we continually mess up in. Yet God's grace is so powerful, it overshadows, it covers anything that we have done. And we think that is an amazing story to hear, but how do we know that's true? How do I know that is true for me? And this is one of the, the lessons or the revelations that my, my dad gave me when, when I was very young. And I think I might have even shared this maybe a couple of times in church before, but I'm going to share it again because I believe it is so powerful. How we know this applies to us is that the worst thing mankind has ever done to God is to crucify his son on the cross. That's the worst thing man has ever done to God. But what did Jesus say as we were nailing his, uh, his arms to the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. He was praying for us. He was crying out to God saying, forgive them, still hold on to them, don't let them go. He was loving us as we were killing him. And so if we have done that to Jesus, to God, and he still loved us, what have you done that's worse than that? You've probably done some bad stuff in your life. I have, but I've never done anything that bad. And so if there is forgiveness there, there is forgiveness for each and every one of us as well. And that's an amazing revelation to have. God is greater than any of our sins. How cool is that? It's amazing, isn't it? I just want to finish with a prayer and then we'll go enjoy some nice warm soup. God, thank you so much for your love, for your grace that knows no bounds. And as we get closer to you, as we come to you, as we ask things of you, I pray you give us the ability to trust in you, to know that it's going to be okay, whatever it is, to know that you are enough, that we don't need to do things just in our own strength, that whatever answers we are seeking, we find in you. But at the same time, we have the courage to sit in those questions, in those times of uncertainty, where we're feeling, where we feel like we are in a place of limbo, maybe in a place of darkness, and we don't have the answers, but just know that you are enough. You are enough, Lord, and your grace and love will give us everything we need and will quench whatever thirst that we might have, Lord. Thank you so much for being amazing, Lord. Amen.